We're going to be looking this morning um, in the first book of the Bible, um, Genesis. We're going to be looking at Genesis 15. So if you have your Bible, uh, you can flip there. It's the first book, chapter 15. Um, the words will appear, um, as Pastor Matt says, if by magic behind me or should at some point. Um, so we'll work through uh, the whole chapter. It's 21 verses, um, obviously not spending the same amount of time on each verse. Uh, but let me, let me take us to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dive in. Father, we come before your presence this morning as we gather as your people. Uh, there are many in this room who know and love and adore your son, and we, we long to hear from you, O oh God, through your word, through this preacher, we long to hear from you, and we pray that we would, and we pray that you would help us to be attentive to your word, gripped by your word. And Father, we, we hope and we pray that there are many in this room who are, who are not your child yet, um, who are questioning, thinking, and at various points along the way. And I pray, Lord, that your word would work profoundly in their life, calling them, drawing them to your son, Jesus. Uh, it's in his name we pray, amen. So we're looking this morning at Genesis 15. The title of the sermon is The Certainty of Faith. The Certainty of Faith. And just by the way that statement, that phrase is constructed, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. What, what do I mean by the certainty of faith? That faith is certain? Uh, well, that's why I'm going to preach a sermon on Genesis 15, because I think the passage answers this for us. I think the idea of faith is largely confused. Uh, the whole concept seems to be very misunderstood. For instance... Do only certain people have faith? Uh, where I come from in the U.S., people talk about faith-based groups. So are there groups with faith and groups without faith? How, how does that work? Uh, in, in what or in whom is one's faith? Sometimes when people are talking about faith, it is really unclear that faith has an object. It's just like, you've just got to have faith. Faith in Faith, faith in a, a particular individual, a person. We can even ask this morning, do, do atheists have faith? No, not in God, clearly, but do they have faith? Are they not trusting in or banking on some idea, some view of reality that they're holding on to to be true and upon which they're staking their very lives, their very existence? And faith, biblical faith that is, is it a blind faith? I hear that a good bit. You, you, you just have to take this leap. So, so what, is, what exactly is blind faith? What, is, what does that mean? Wouldn't blind faith be believing something and even staking your whole life upon something that has no basis in reality for certain, hence it's blind does the reality that we can't fully know and explain everything there is to know about God, the Trinity, the dual natures of Christ, the age of the earth, the timing of his second coming and judgment, or precisely every single detail about the world to come, does that make faith in Christ blind necessarily? Listen, faith is actually a more common concept than you might think. Related to faith is confidence. When you're confident in something or someone, they're considered to be reliable, or they have been. Then you're in the level, then your level of trust or confidence in them is high if they've been reliable. See, these are, these are relational categories. We know them and we experience the idea of faith constantly in relationships. If we tell others again and again, that we'll do something for them, 
but, but something always seems to come up. At the very best, we, we recognize that that person may be well-intended, they have good intentions, but they're powerless to actually deliver on their word. Promises and guarantees to others of future reliability, trust me, trust me, don't go too far when we've been hit or miss in fulfilling our word. Now, faith, or better, my trust of somebody is directly related to my confidence in that person's ability and ultimately their faithfulness to do what it is that they have promised to do. And we'll see in our passage this morning in Genesis 15, 1 through 21, that biblical faith is trusting in the Lord to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's depending upon and resting in his promises, which are rooted in what he has already accomplished for us in Christ. So we're going to look this morning in this passage at the certainty of faith, and we're going to look at it under two main headings, okay? Verses 1 through 6, which I'm about to read, the, the idea is the nature of faith. What is the nature of faith? And that is ultimately taking God at his word. And then verses 7 through 21 reveal the object of faith, and that is the reliability of God. So first, the nature of faith, taking God at his word. Look with me at verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. Now the passage begins after these things. So what are the things that what's being talked about right here are after. Well, at the very least, it's after what went down in chapter 14, uh, which was this amazing scene of Abraham rallying 318 of his men, his people, who were a part of his house, and they go out in defense of five kings who were carried away by another group of kings. And this is ultimately Abraham functioning in the narrative as this, this ruling and conquering king and delivering his nephew Lot and, and his family and all these people from these other kings. Now, certainly when God speaks to Abraham here, perhaps Abraham's thinking, what if these guys come back, right? So maybe there's a little bit of concern. But the story goes back further. Right back in chapter 12, God calls Abram out of Ur of Chaldea, out of Babylon, and he calls him, and he's going to use him and through him to be a blessing to the nations. And when you go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, after creation and God made Adam and Eve and he placed them in a garden, the story is sad in the way that they treated God's word and ultimately rebelled against God. And in the midst of their rebellion, in the midst of him issuing judgment and him casting them out of the garden, he also issues a word of judgment upon the serpent in Genesis 3.15. And in that judgment word, it's also a promise of salvation to come, right? He spoke of how that a seed, a male offspring would come from Eve, 
that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, that the serpent would bruise his heel, but that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And when you look at the the, the book of Genesis, there's a really clear, clear structure to it. There's these 10, what they're called Toledoth formulas. These, These are the generations of, these are the generations of. The whole book is about tracing this promise, this promise that a future Male offspring, a kingly figure is going to come, and he's going to crush the serpent, the devil, who through human rebellion and collusion brought sin into the world. He's going to make things right. He's going to reverse the curse. And this is, this is what the book of Genesis is all about. And God's call of Abraham in Genesis 12 is pointed squarely at this. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the word bless or blessing in three verses is used five times. And this is really interesting because the word curse, which flows out of human sin, God's judgment upon sin, is used exactly five times in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So curse, which is the judgment and the consequence for sin, occurs five times in the first 11 chapters. And in the first three verses in God's call of Abraham, the word bless or blessing occurs five times. It's, it's signaling to the reader, to the hearer, that the reversal of the curse is coming in and through Abraham and his offspring. And God makes him this promise that he's going to make him a great nation. He's going to make his name great. And that everybody would be blessed in Abraham and in his seed. This is interesting because he's old and his wife is barren. So this amounts to ultimately a miraculous birth. And yet when we come to Genesis 15, this is some years after Genesis 12, and there's still no baby boy. And Abraham's wrestling in this passage. He's struggling In this passage, you heard what I read. So is Eleazar of Damascus going to be my heir? Is is this what your promise amounts to, God? Is this the one? The Lord promises to bless Abraham here in 15. He promises to be a shield about him. Here now, The Lord promises to be his deliverer from the enemies roundabout. As I mentioned a moment ago, perhaps he's even thinking, oh, these kings may come back on me. Hence the statement, do not fear. And his promise to reward him greatly. The Lord will bless Abraham for forgoing the worldly wealth that he gave away in chapter 14. But here... Here is Abraham's complaint in verses two through three. His response to the promise here is to question, even to complain. Now, I regularly point out to my students at Tyndale and to my children, even to my wife, um, and myself as well, that grumbling and complaining are antithetical to faith. They are the antithesis of faith. And and left unchecked, grumbling and complaining will destroy you. All right, that's what happened uh, in the Exodus of the first generation. It will ultimately land you in hell. And you need to grasp the difference here between grumbling and complaining and what Abraham is doing, okay? Abraham is taking his complaint to God. He's interacting with God, and this this is a move of faith. The last time I preached here, I preached on Psalm 137, which is a a lament psalm, and I mentioned then that those, those psalms, that complaint, that lament, that outcrying to God is a move of faith. It's not whiny complainers. The issue is not that Abraham's complaining. 
the issue and the importance is that he's complaining to God. He's taking this to the Lord, the one who has made the promise. His complaint is that the reward he wants is the offspring that the Lord has already promised. Will a servant possess his stuff? Eliezer of Damascus, that's what he wants to know. God, God, are you going to deliver or what? Abraham forewent worldly reward, blessing, and, 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 and he's longing, he's longing for the promise of God. And we see in verses four through six, God's object lesson for Abraham, right? The Lord makes it clear that Abe's promised seed, the seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15, will come from him, come from his own loins. The text very woodenly could be translated. Not by adoption, not by taking in Eleazar. Again, it's the word of the Lord. God takes the initiative. God speaks to Abraham. God makes this promise. He brings him outside, this object lesson. Have you ever, I, I trust everybody here has seen a night sky. But have you ever really seen a night sky? I, Amsterdam is great, love the city, but this isn't the place to go stargazing. Have you ever been somewhere that's so dark that when you look up, it almost looks like the stars are connecting? Here you go out and you see a dark sky, and it's like, there's a star, there's a star, there's a star. But in 2004, when I went out of my tent in South Sudan and I looked up, it's like the stars were just interwoven and connected, this bright night sky. And this is something like Abraham would have seen coming out of his tent. And God's saying, number the stars, Abraham. One, two, three, whoops, where was I? Yeah, you get the idea. So shall your offspring, your seed be. God is saying, Abraham, when I get done blessing you, you won't be able to count them all. This is the promise. And we see in verse 6, Abraham's faith, his response. His response to the fresh promise of God's word to him is this, Abraham believed or he trusted God. And God counted or reckoned his faith in the promise of a seed to come as righteousness. This is the nature of faith. It's not blind, irrational, mindlessness. Abe's talking, Abraham's talking, sorry I abbreviated. I'm gonna say Abraham so many times this morning in my notes, it just says Abe, Abe, Abe. Abraham is talking to God audibly. He's seeing him in this vision. And Abraham's, Abraham's faith is taking God at his word, trusting in the promise. You need to understand, though, that doesn't mean that Abraham knows how God is going to fulfill his promise, right? But he's trusting God, that God is able to accomplish what he's promised. He can pull it off. This is extremely important. You may have heard the key doctrine of, the just, of justification by faith. Paul in the New Testament quotes this passage. The word righteousness here. Here in Genesis 15 refers to behavior that serves the community according to God's norms. It's, it's a moral category. Abraham is not sinless. He doesn't perfectly obey the Lord in everything. But what the verse is communicating is that God counts Abraham's faith, his trust in his word about the promised offspring as righteousness. That is to say, God counts it as equivalent to Abraham meeting the moral demands that would later be, later be stipulated in the Mosaic Covenant. He is counted as though he is a covenant keeper when he's not. I mean, read the narrative, he passes his wife around a few times in some really tough situations. God demands perfection as he is perfection. One sin, one act of rebellion brought death and separation from God in the garden. So what we have here is Abraham being reckoned as a law keeper, obedient to God on the basis of trusting God's word. Faith isn't merely believing that God exists or even believing that the Bible is reliable. It is trusting God, fundamentally his promise of salvation. 
Remember, remember this whole promise of a seed is bound up in the Lord's previous promise to Abraham, I'm sorry, to Adam and Eve of this seed that would come from the woman to destroy the devil and save God's people. Right, so this is linked to what God's already promised. Abraham is ultimately trusting in God's promise of Messiah, the conquering king that will come through his line, through his genealogical line. You remember how, do you remember how the New Testament begins? Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And this is what the Bible is doing. It's, it's tracing God's promise of a, of a Messiah, of a king, of a savior to come. At the heart of this idea of faith in God is God's word. If he doesn't talk, if he keeps silent, then we can't listen and we can't trust his promises. Abraham wrestled with God's promise of an offspring, complaining to God about how the promise was yet unfulfilled. Now we'll see in verses seven and following Abraham wrestling with the other promise that God gave him. God promised him genealogy. He promised him progeny. He promised to make him a great nation. But he also promised him geography, property. He promised him a place where that nation and that people would be. And so we see in verses 7 through 21, Abraham wrestling with that promise as well. Let's look at those verses now. Verses 7 through 21. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three, year, a thre, a, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed, passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This section is getting at the object of faith, the reliability of God. It begins again with the Lord speaking to Abram. God always takes the initiative. Whereas verses one through six focused on the Lord's promise of an heir, a male offspring, now this is focused on his promise of a land. Look again there at verse seven. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. Now, as we're going through Exodus, that language should be strikingly similar. It should sound familiar. Do you remember the beginning of the 10 words, the 10 commandments? I am Yahweh your God. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The language is identical. The Lord is reminding Abraham what, what he's done for Abraham. None of this was Abraham's idea, but he was just another polytheist until God called him. But by taking Abraham back, God is reminding him of his past faithfulness and grace to Abraham. And God means here to bolster Abraham's faith. Does this sound familiar? 
Again, the connection is very, very similar to to Exodus 20, verse 2. Where there, God's reminder of grace motivates obedience. Even before the Exodus event itself, speaking of the future, the the Lord says in, in Exodus 6, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It's important that you see this. Not only is the Lord doing for Abraham what he'll do for Moses and for Abraham's offspring later down the line, again, the language is identical. The Lord is speaking of bringing Abraham out of Ur with near exact language hundreds of years before. Now, the literary theological point that I'm trying to make is this, that, that Moses wrote this and he wants us to see that both of these acts of redemption are intimately connected. That is to say, God's call of Abraham out of Ur foreshadows the calling of his progeny out of Egypt in saving them. These salvation events, these turning points in God's story with his people of redemption, one thing is like another. All of these things are connected. Later in Scripture, when the, prophet, when the prophets start talking about God's future plans of redemption, the coming king from David, the writers describe it as a new exodus. Patterns of redemption, one thing is like another. Right? Here the, the impulse is that this this saving event foreshadows the next and that there's a pattern and that there's connections between each of these and they're all fitted together so that there's these trajectories that run through all of Scripture that are ultimately pointing to and fulfilled in Christ Jesus. When he comes out onto the scene, he doesn't come out of nowhere. He comes in fulfillment of God's prior promises, which is what's going on right here in Genesis 15, with the Lord. Again, God is seeking to bolster Abraham's faith in future grace. I did this. I brought you out. So, so be sure that I will fulfill to you every promise of my word. Abraham's saying, you promised me land. I don't have land. And that's his complaint in verse eight. How shall I know? How shall I know that I will possess it? Again, I want to just be clear this morning that true faith does not mean the absence of doubt. I mean, the guy that interacted with Jesus in the Gospels who had the beautiful response, I believe, help my unbelief. I mean, if you're a Christian and you don't feel that, and that's not encouraging to you, I, I hope it could be. Because that's the nature of faith. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And this is what God does. He keeps taking us back to his promises, what he has done, so that we can bank on and we can trust in the future grace that he's promised to us. What causes Abraham to doubt here? For for us, what causes us to doubt? Abraham needs his confidence in the one giving the promise to be boosted. When promises are unfulfilled or we can't see how it's going to work out, this is when doubt creeps in. And what you do with your doubt is key. Abraham brings his doubt to God. He brings his complaint. He remains in dialogue with God. He talks, yeah, but, oh, oh no, I I shouldn't do that. That's not how I should talk to God. That's not right, that's not godly. Well, whatever that means, it's biblical. It's biblical. Wrestling, questioning, quaking, bring it to God. He answers Abraham and what he tells him and what he shows him is infinitely better than a detailed itinerary of how and when he's going to deliver all these promises. I think that's sometimes what we want. Like, God, give me the itinerary of the next 20 years of my life. 
and he will not give that to you. But he gives you himself, okay? He gives you himself. And this is what we see in, in verses 9 through 21. We see this covenant ceremony. And, 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 of, and of all that I've read this morning, I'm telling you when I read that, I was thinking it. You were probably thinking of it. This is weird. This is strange. This isn't like anything that I've ever experienced. That's right. This is thousands and thousands of years ago in the ancient Near East. This is a covenant ceremony, and this is how people came into a covenant relationship, a binding agreement of trust. Promises are being made. Oaths are being ratified, certified, guaranteed. And God does more than simply sign his name here, which is what we usually think of in terms of a contract. All right, I put my signature on it. That's binding. Just, this is a little bit more binding. God's response to Abraham was take these animals. And Abraham seems to know what's going on. So he goes and he gets these animals, a heifer, a female goat, a ram, all three years old, plus tur a turtle dove and a pigeon. Okay, so the big animals he cuts in half. He lays them opposite one another. The birds he doesn't cut. Strange, right? Again, Abraham seems to know what's going on. God doesn't give him a detailed rundown, but he does this. And then the text talks about how God causes a deep sleep to fall upon Abraham. This is very interesting. It's the same language from back in Genesis 2 where God causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And then he takes from his side and he builds his wife. There's another covenant going on there where God is making two people to come into covenant relationship with himself. I think there's a connection there. Okay, And the Lord speaks. This isn't... This isn't Abraham's idea. The Lord speaks. He says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners 400 years in a land not theirs. Now, let me just stop right there. Abraham's saying, how can I know that I'm going to be possessor of this land? Oh, hey, know for certain that your offspring, you will have offspring, they're going to be uh, servants and slaves in a land not theirs for 400 years. It's like, when is the promise ever going to become reality? Abraham didn't see it. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 11 says that Abraham was looking beyond this piece of dirt in the Middle East. He was looking to a city whose architect and builder are God. He was seeing that this promise here in Genesis 15 was massive. massive. It was bigger than just this. Abraham never owns the land except for a little burial plot that he buys. He doesn't see possession in his lifetime. I'm just setting your expectations if you're considering Christ. Because some people get up here and they preach your best life now. That's not the scriptures. The, the gospel according to Abraham, the gospel according to Moses, the gospel according to Jesus Christ is your best life later. Right? Hey, let me really bolster your faith. You're struggling whether you're going to get this land or not. Your progeny will get it after being slaves for 400 years. He also promises judgment. God promises in this passage to judge Egypt, that's who's being revert, referred to, that he will judge them, that he will bring them out with great possessions, and that he will also judge the current inhabitants of the land. The current possessors of the land, according to the text, aren't yet ready to be judged. Five, over 500 plus years from now, they will be. I don't have time to get off on this this morning, but you need to circle this passage if you struggle at all with the conquest, which a lot of people do, and they struggle, and people want to talk about Israel taking the land, being genocide. Let me just say, I don't think it is. I don't think that's what's going on at all. But one of the things we can see from this passage is God is talking about that over 500 years in advance, that he's going to judge them, but not yet because their sin has not grown to the point where he's ready to judge them. This screams of the patience and mercy of God where people look at judgment passages in the Old Testament and they, and, they, and they 
get upset and they want to see this, this God of the Bible as this angry tyrant that's just looking for a reason to smack you down, to judge you. To... When I read this, I'm seeing a God who is being patient. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans 2, that the, the patience and the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. Oh, dear one, if you're not a Christian this morning and you're wrestling with judgment, I'm here to talk after. There are other people that are here to talk after. But understand, understand the patience of God. Understand the, the, the kindness of God towards you. Even now today, you're here sitting under the word and can consider these things. This text and many others teach that the one true God, the only God that is there, he will bring all creation into justice. God is just. He punishes sin, and yet God is patient. He doesn't give us what we deserve immediately. He's trustworthy. He will bring to pass all of his good promises. He is merciful and gracious. In the gospel, he doesn't treat us as we deserve. All, all of the Lord's words to Abraham here communicate the gospel in type form. These patterns of judgment, patterns of mercy, grace, they're ultimately pointing to or fulfilled in Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection and in his coming again. In, in God being glorified through his salvation of his people in judgment. But what comes next in the passage is just astounding, okay? This is so important. What's going on here, I said a moment ago, is a covenant ceremony. In typical, in typical ancient Near Eastern uh, fashion, the two parties of a covenant obligate themselves to one another. It's, 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 it's an odd sounding ceremony, I get it. Um, the, the ritual here, let, let me read a passage from, uh, from Jeremiah 34, which just, just listen to this, and this gives us an idea of what's going on, okay? Uh, this is where the people had made a covenant with God. Now Jeremiah says, the word of the Lord says in, in Jeremiah 34, 18 through 20, and the men who have transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Did you hear that? So, so this odd-sounding ceremony, it's a covenant ritual whereby the covenant partners are acting out their oaths to keep their end of the agreement. We typically say in our marriage vows, at least my bride and I did, till death do us part, and we sign the marriage license obligating ourselves to one another. So this would be like saying, if I don't hold up my end of the covenant, put me to death. The one who passes between the halves of animals is calling down a curse upon himself for the failure to keep the covenant. Only here here in Genesis 3.15, in this, this theophonic vision of the Lord passing as a smoking pot and a torch, the Lord alone passes through the halves. His promise. God, God who cannot lie, doesn't simply leave his word revelation to stand for itself, his promise. He comes down. He certifies the truthfulness of his word by obligating himself to an unbreakable covenant with Abraham in which God, God is saying, Abraham, if, if, I, if I fail to fulfill all of my good promise to you, may it be done to me as it's been done to these animals. God takes down the curse of the covenant on himself. How can the infinite, eternal God be made finite? How can immortal be made mortal? How can God who is spirit be ripped limb from limb like these animals? 
That's the point. That's the point. You can't. And just like the Lord calling Abraham out of Ur foreshadowed his calling of Abraham's descendants out of Egypt in the Exodus, so God's promised covenant here with Abraham where God comes down in a vision and puts himself on the hook for the whole thing. This foreshadows and is a type of the new covenant sealed in Christ's sinless blood. Do you see? The gospel of Jesus Christ, his perfect life of obedience to the Father, his death in our place, bearing the curse of the covenant for us, our inability to perfectly obey, and his resurrection from the dead on the third day are the ultimate saving reality that God's actions here with Abraham are pointing to. God did die. God was ripped limb from limb. Jesus, the very son of God, became flesh and he was mocked and he was beaten and he was whipped and flogged and crucified naked hanging on a Roman cross as a sin-bearing, curse-bearing substitute for us. He passed through the animal halves, as it were. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He kept the covenant. But he took the hit for we who have all broken the covenant. He fulfills all of it himself. This is mercy. This is grace. This, friends, brothers and sisters, is the certainty of faith. As the hymn writer leads us to sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, that is the sweetest frame of mind, your best thought on your best day. I dare not trust it, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. True faith, biblical faith, is all about the object of faith, the one trusted in. He is able, he is worthy, and he will fulfill all of his good promises. Salvation comes through judgment to God's glory and for our good. He will right every wrong, judge every sin ultimately and perfectly. He promises to judge Egypt who will oppress Abraham's descendants. He promises to judge the Amorites when Israel takes possession of the land under Joshua. But in righting every wrong, God ultimately takes judgment to himself. And, and he did this at the cross. I want to appeal to you this morning, friend. If you're here this morning and you're not yet believing in Christ, you're not trusting in Jesus yet, then you're currently under the judging righteousness of God. I don't, I don't want you to miss that. That's not my idea. Jesus says it in John 5, that you're under judgment. You're under the wrath of God. The Bible speaks, Romans 5, of anyone who's outside of Christ as enemies of God. That's heavy. But it also talks about in the gospel how God takes that judgment that we deserve to himself in order, in love, to make we who were once rebels, we who were once enemies, dearly loved children. Now, I'm sorry. Well, no, I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry. It's the gospel. We need to be offended. We're deserving of God's wrath. And grace and love and mercy are only grace and love and mercy when viewed rightly against the backdrop of God's judging righteousness. You don't get the gospel and you don't love Jesus until you reckon with the reality of what you deserve as a sinner 
before a holy God. Then, then when you understand what he's done for you, then you love him. Then you trust him. Then you bank everything on him. And I want to ask you this morning, there's no pressure, but if you're not outside of, if you're, if you're not a Christian, if you're still outside of Christ, I just want to prompt you this morning to consider what, what is holding you back from running to Christ? Has anyone ever loved you like this? I mean, sure, you might have had a friend or a sibling that took the blame for you, but has anyone ever loved you like this and took your eternity in hell to themselves, absorbed the infinite wrath of God for it and turned it inside out in grace and open arms to hug you, to love you, to save you, to bring you in? Have you ever known love like this? This is our God. This is our God. And this is the certainty of faith. Faith is trusting in God's promises, trusting in Christ ultimately to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. It's neither blind nor does it, okay, it's neither blind, this faith in Christ, nor does it possess exhaustive knowledge of the future. Okay? You're not a fool to believe in Jesus, but he's, not, but he's also not going to give you an itinerary for the next 20 years. Why? Because faith and trust is relational. He's calling you into a covenant relationship with himself through his son, which is better than an itinerary. You don't want God to just be your travel agent. You want him... Psalm 23 style to be your good shepherd, leading you every step of the way, going before you and behind you and with you, loving you, suffering for you, caring for you. He's the one in whom our triune God has fulfilled all of his good promises. It's Christ. So as we close this morning, why does our faith, Christian, why does our faith ebb and flow? Does yours? Mine does. Why do we feel at times like we're barely hanging on? I, I trust that I'm not alone in feeling that way. Have you ever wished that you could just have a stronger faith? I just wish I had a stronger faith. But how does God strengthen our faith? The same way he strengthened Abraham's faith. He gives us himself. He reminds us of who he is and what he's done. Everything in life is related to faith. It's not just some idea. It's a very concrete, relational category. Why do we get angry? I mean, I'm just speaking hypothetically. I know none of you get angry. Why do we get angry? I mean, often we get angry over injustice. Either we or someone we love has been mistreated in our view. And we're angry because we want, we're angry because we're not trusting God's justice. We want justice now. Why don't, why doesn't that person get what they deserve? God says to Abraham, I'll, I'll, I'll judge your oppressors. Not in Abraham's time, but God promises him. Why do we fear? We fear because we don't trust God's provision. Abraham, I will make you rich. Your reward will be great. Yeah, but what about the fact that I don't have a male heir like you promised? Look up, Abraham. Yeah, but what about the land? Abraham, if I don't produce, you can kill me. Why are we anxious? We're anxious because we want things a certain way or in a certain time frame, and we're worried that God won't deliver for us. That's a faith issue. Are you going to trust him to deliver for you in his timing? According 
to his care and concern, the one that knows the end from the beginning, the one in whom there is no beginning. He's always existed. He knows everything, the number of hairs on your head. He knows everything. You don't even, come on, let's be honest, you don't even know you all that well. I'm 43 years old and I'm still figuring out Derek. It's like, why didn't I know that when I was 20? It's kind of frustrating. But God knows everything about you and he knows everything about me. Why are we so foolish and prideful and ignorant to think that we know better than God? And we get all worked up, all anxious that that God needs to deliver it just like this over a myriad of things. You fill in the blank. Why do we doubt? Often because God didn't deliver for us in our timing how we wanted it. But did he promise that? As you wrestle with doubt, and all true faith wrestles with doubt, you need to wrestle with what you're frustrated with God about and what you're struggling in your heart and your doubt over. Is this something that God clearly promised you? Is this a promise of Scripture that God is welching on? We we wrestle, and rightly so. But this is where we, again, should just be right back to the cross. The God who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Don't get excited about the all things. Get excited about him. Him. Let's pray. God, we need your grace to trust in faith your grace. Lord, I think about Jesus' words in John 1 where he speaks about faith in place of, or grace in place of grace. It's your grace, Father, from beginning to end. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gift of faith to enjoy Jesus and pray, Lord, that you would help us. And now as we sing your grace and as we partake of this meal of grace, Lord, we pray that you would, you would fire the, our, our hearts of, of faith in you. All of this, Lord, you've designed all of this to keep bringing us back and reminding us of who you are and what you've done because we are so prone to wander. We are so, so quick to forget. Give us grace not to forget, but to cling, to trust, the holy trust in Jesus' name. Amen.